Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Backchat. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. Yes, indeed. You are listening to Backchat here on FBI Radio, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swatha Das. And I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. And as always, we're going to give you the news that you may not have heard on your airwaves this week. That's right. First up, we have Mel Fife, our favourite urban planner and CEO of Black Thumb, <laughs> in the studio to discuss how we can transform underused commercial spaces for sustainable farming in our cities. After that, we have queer activist Aidan Magro talking to us about the corporatization of Mardi Gras and how fighting against it might be distracting from more important issues in the queer community. And as always, we want to hear from you. Do you care about big corporations promoting at Mardi Gras? This is a hot topic. And as someone who uh, works at a corporation, I'm not sure how I feel about it. So I'd love to hear from you guys. Text us in on 0409-945-945 or tweet us at Backchat FBI. To show us all what a beep lying, beep backstabbing, beep treacherous, beep beep she is. Thanks, Colin. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. You know that dump behind your building? What if you could turn it into a farm? The dream. Urban planner Mel Fife founded Black Thump, a business which aims to bring food closer to those consuming it by creating small networked farms in unused spaces within our city. And she's in the studio with us right now. Hi, Mel. Hi, guys. Lovely to be back. Thank you. Thank you for coming back. Black Thump seems really, really cool. So can you tell us a bit more about what you're working on? Well, we think it's very cool as well. (laughs) So it was founded by myself and Carrie, and we wanted to do that because we wanted to make sure that, exactly as you said, we wanted to bring food closer where people live. We've got climate change is impacting us, massive. Um, We've got rapid urbanisation, you know, already over half the planet is... Already over half the planet is living in cities, and that's due to grow to 70% 70 by 2050, so... We need to rethink the way that our food system works so that we can be more sustainable. We're already losing arable land. Farming farming is already struggling to meet the food demand. And with a forecast 50% additional need yeah. in the future, how are we going to do that? We need to think smarter and do differently. So can you paint us a picture of what sustainable farming would look like in our cities? Yep. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the time people think urban farming, they either think, you know, soil-based farms um, in someone's backyard or community gardens, things like that, or you think rooftop farms. So when we talk about urban farming, we're talking about high-yielding, high-scale, but in small space, urban farming. Mm-hmm. So we're talking rooftops in basements or within buildings themselves. And the way that we grow up Black Thumb is with aquaponics, which is essentially the marriage of growing fish with plants. So what's great about it is it's an ecosystem. You can't put any rubbish in because you kill your fish. Wait, marrying fish with plants. So you you have fish. Yeah. And then you have essentially a hydroponic system, so a a completely soil-free growing system. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, so the way it works is that you feed the fish and the fish do their natural thing where they create waste. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And And then that is turned into nutrients through a natural process for the plants and they take up those nutrients and grow grow well and in the process clean the water it goes back to the fish tank wow so so i want you to unpack that a bit for me just so that i can understand the difference between urban farming and traditional farming because what you're describing doesn't seem to include soil no absolutely not and and urban farming can mean any type of farming but just in an urban environment Mm -hmm. but where we come from is that cities by their nature are compact 
space is, is optimal, it's, a, it's constrained, and so we need to use space really wisely. And so the angle that we come at it with is that we've actually got lots of spaces in cities that we can grow food at a high yield, but we don't necessarily use those spaces. And they're not good for other things. They're not good for offices, they're not good for homes, but you know, basements, for an example, perfect for growing food, mm. but not good for living in. Mm. And so our view is that you can use all sorts of spaces in cities to grow food. And as long as you've got the technology to optimise them, you've got the right sort of compact growing system like aquaponics, mm. then you can grow a ton of diverse stuff in a really healthy way in cities. So where did this idea come from? Like what prompted you to consider using unused spaces within our cities for large-scale food production? Yeah, so kind of two two main angles with that. So one is Carrie and I both between us have over 30s experience essentially making, shaping, programming, policy developing cities so we come at it from that sort of space design construct build angle and then the other side was so Carrie is um, indigenous New Zealander so she's Maori and also living in the local area here we just wanted to make sure so we we, uh, originally started off really focused on indigenous communities and food security Mm. and we were developing up that idea and then as we got more into it we realized that if we're going to deal with food security, let's actually deal with food security as a broad issue because then we can actually have a really positive impact, not just for Indigenous communities, but for any other disadvantaged communities and society as a whole. So that's where we developed Black Thumb from there. Love that. You're listening to Backshot here on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha and Shami. We're speaking to Mel Fife, CEO of Black Thumb, about urban farming and the potential to transform underused commercial spaces for sustainable farming in our cities. And our listeners don't know this, but there is a strong scent of basil. There is. In the studio. Because <laughs> wonderful Mel has brought in these huge bouquets of basil <laughs> that you are growing in your backyard. We are. Yeah. We so, are. And what did you say is attached to it as a water tube or yeah so we've got these essentially a little test tube that has water from the farm in it because it's full of nutrients and so and it's also a little bit of a pinky color because that's because we've put some iron in the water because that's the plants need that and it doesn't naturally occur Mm. in the system um so yeah it's it's a bit red and you put it in the test tube and it actually stays fresher for longer Oh, can't oh wait. my God. Can everyone who dates me who wants to bring me a bouquet of basil only bring me <laughs> basil from now? Hot tip out there, everyone. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Um, so, Mel, how important is it to future-proof our cities given our growing population and ever-changing climate? Yeah, we think it's absolutely vital. And, you know, cities should be great places to live. They should be cultural and vibrant, but they should also be nourishing. And we've got a huge opportunity to actually create nourishing cities um, and Australia is a little bit behind the eight ball on this. And so what we're doing is we want to enable the market. We want to enable this to happen so that we don't get five years down the track and go, oh, my God, what are we going to do about this? We, we can't grow enough food. So we want to make sure that we're in there nice and early. We've actually got a, a massive project on the go where we've got a big site that's that's going to get launched this year. You know, I can't tell you much about it. Oh, but okay. Okay. I know, but that's all right. Can after the show? Tell us. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but that will launch later this year. It's in a, it's in a big prominent site with a with a big property partner. So we're really excited about that. Oh. That is very exciting. Um, but naturally, there'd be some risks and barriers associated with projects like that. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah. So um, part of the reason we're doing this is, I mean, in our background, risks and barriers, yes. But part of the barriers are just perception. This is, I mean, as in any sort of new innovation in property, people want to see it done before they take the road and so we're actually 
we've partnered with this property partner because they're really forward thinking, really serious about sustainability and they're excited about doing this project with us because they see the value of it and they see the opportunity to nourish their community and they also see the opportunity to transform the way that we think about infrastructure and, and buildings in cities. So it's really exciting. So you've just been awarded an innovation grant by the City of Sydney. Congratulations. Yeah, so how will that help you with your research? So we applied for that grant because we really wanted to build that evidence base. So we, we're essentially going to be talking with lots of architects, developers, property managers, project managers, anyone who basically forms the built environment to really understand the evidence behind those perceptions, risks, barriers, opportunities, so that we can, with our history in the industry, we, we understand a lot of it, but we want to make sure we get as many diverse perspectives as possible so that we can have that evidence base to, to show people that it's just there's a perception, yeah. there's mm-hmm. value in it, let's do it. It's not hard. So do you know if there are other countries that are doing similar research into this area and has it been implemented anywhere else? There's other countries that are way ahead of us in terms of urban farming, in terms of vertical farming, for example. Um, But in terms of the research, there's not much that actually exists in terms of the the perceptions Mm. and the risks and barriers and opportunities, which is why we really wanted to to take this opportunity and do the research ourselves. So how like what's your view of the future how long will it take until this just becomes a normal part of life well i i think it's going to be sooner than we think so Mm. it's already a a huge emerging industry in the states in the middle east and in asia as well especially singapore hong kong and japan we are already being approached by other organizations and and firms in australia and internationally about this so we know that the time is right the energy is really there and once it happens, it's going to happen a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to make sure that we track your progress along the way. Thank you so I much. I can't wait for that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking with us this morning, Mel. Thank you very much, guys. That was Mel Five, CEO of Black Thumb. She was just in the studio chatting to us about how we can introduce sustainable farming in our city landscapes. Don't move that dial because we'll soon be talking about tonight's Mardi Gras parade and how it might be slowing down the work of queer activists. Yes, but right now we're going to one of my favorite songs of the week. This is the latest from Sydney Art. Artists A.Y., J. Cooper, Marina Doe, and Selassie Wussa. The music video is fire. Flow Fire Records has been putting out some sick tracks. This is See Me. Enjoy. The Australian taxpayer even pays for the toilet paper she uses. Does she go down to the chemist to buy the tampons? Or is the Australian taxpayer paying for those as well? Fact Chat, your alternative to talk back. Is there any bigger buzzkill than raving at the Mardi Gras parade and seeing a New South Wales police force float? How about a pack of Combank or Westpac employees voguing to RuPaul? From gay TMs to love is love fashion items, queer corporatization during Mardi Gras has it an all-time high. So we have queer activist Aidan Magro here in the studio talking to us about the corporatization of Mardi Gras and how it might be taking up space from more important queer conversations. Hi, Aiden. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Our absolute pleasure. So why do you think the Mardi Gras parade has become over-commercialized? Well, I mean, if you look at the amount of floats that were rejected this year, for instance, Stop Adani um, didn't manage to get a float. Um, but however, like Swetha was saying, um, we've got the New South Wales Police Force, we've got all of these corporations like Qantas and um, Gilead, who's actually no longer marching in the parade. But is still a sponsor. Mm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, all of these corporations are taking up a lot of space um, at Mardi Gras where it is supposed to be a community-based event. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, what effect has this commercialization had on queer organizing groups? Well, it means that um, Mardi Gras is now a huge part of um, the human um, the human rights violations that, mm-hmm. um, for instance, Qantas or, or Gilead are a huge part of as well, which means that we do need to sort of um, face that concern head on. Yep. However, it is taking up a lot of space in terms of queer organising, um, especially with a um, the current political climate, like the religious exemptions bill, which is currently, um, you know, a huge part of the political um, yeah. climate at the moment. Yeah. Mm. So what kinds of issues has Mardi Gras distracted from? You've mentioned the religious bill. Um, we've also got a lot of deportations of refugees, yeah. which um, is a huge thing. We do have a very racist border system in Australia. Um, we've also got a lot of queer homelessness. Um, we've got a very disproportionate level of queer homelessness in, in Australia. Um, and that kind of is distracted from with Mardi Gras and putting so much effort into um, kind of doing this large campaign, which is to sort of reform Mardi Gras or put forward motions which are supposed to somehow um, reform the Mardi Gras policy itself. But then there isn't really much of a kind of way to put it beyond the Mardi Gras policies. They're all, they all seem to be aimed at Mardi Gras rather than larger systems of inequality. And it kind of feels like it's like the one day we'll talk about some of those issues and then silence. Well, that's right. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, so you've mentioned the Religious Rights Bill. How will this neg- negatively impact queer people? Right. Um, the Religious Exemptions Bill um, basically will give the the right to discriminate based on religious beliefs um, in, a, in a lot of different areas of public life. Um, basically, a doctor could refuse to, to treat you for the, on the basis of your identity if that's what their religious belief yeah. yeah. It, it, How yeah. is this real? It, it sounds just like... in my face and I was just shaking my head while you were talking. Well, yeah. yeah. And it, it, it like does... Handmaid's Tale. Like, it doesn't sound real at all. Yeah. Yeah, and it does beg the question, how is this real and why isn't it a bigger topic of yeah. conversation and, yeah. and how can Mardi Gras kind of be this big, big thing that always comes around and then all of a sudden, as soon as it finishes, it that's it, like no one ever talks about anything like this. People just taking glitter out of their hair for a week and (laughs) they won't talk about it again. (laughs) So so tell us about the queer organising groups that are um, trying to fight that bill. Right. So, um, uh, for instance, Community Action for Rainbow Rights is is, um, one of the lead organisations who are organising the protests, um, who have started organising the protests since the announcement of the bill. Um, and they also did the marriage equality um, protests as well. Um, they are basically we're basically organizing lots of different protests and kind of different angles of like how to approach it because it not only affects queer people but it affects women. Um, it affects people of of different faith. Basically, you could probably rename the religious exemptions bill to the Christian exemptions bill if you were being being <laughs> honest. <Yeah. laughs> You're listening to Bakcha here on uh, FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha and Shami. We've got queer activist Aidan Magro here in the studio with us, chatting to us about the commercialization of Mardi Gras. And we've got some texts in. Henry from Newtown says, I saw Red Bull promoting 
Red Bull, why march when you can float? Uh, <laughs> weird. Um, yep. And Divya from Mossman says, isn't it better to have more exposure around these events? Like, isn't, can't we use Mardi Gras' brand to, to kind of speak about the issues that need to be spoken about? Totally. Yeah, I, I, if they allowed those floats. And- <laughs> well, that's right. But also, um, I do believe that, you know, publicising these issues is super important. However, we do need to go beyond that. We actually need to do direct action. If mm. we do want to talk about Qantas's role in the deportation of refugees, we actually need to... Um, rather than just put motions forward that will probably not be accepted well by the Mardi Gras board, which is largely conservative, um, we actually need to face that dissent directly towards Qantas and directly towards the Australian government. Can, okay, wait. So the Mardi Gras board is mostly conservative? Mm. Well, yeah, they're, they're largely quite complacent in terms of these issues. They, they really, I mean... The motions that Pride and Protest put up, out of all of them, only two got up, and that was basically to condemn Gilead, which is a company which price gouged PrEP, which is basically um, an antiviral medication Mm. for um, people. Um, It's basically a HIV prevention medication. They basically price gouged it. And there was also a motion um, to create an ethical charter for sponsors. Um, But basically... I mean, those motions kind of haven't really been actualised because in the end, the Mardi Gras board does have the say. And currently Pride and Protest um, has one board member. Um, You can't really do much with that. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, even if you could, there's so much more that you could do Mm. to fight those issues. Um, Why aren't we thinking about that? You know, you it doesn't necessarily have to be through Mardi Gras that we organise these issues. There are plenty of other places. So on that note, should we bring back some of its protest routes? I mean, I would love that. Yeah, <laughs> go off. <laughs> but on the same note, I don't know if it's worth it, if it's if it's actually worth that, um, because, I mean, we can protest on any old day, and, and we do, that's the thing. Mm. Um, and I, I do think that Mardi Gras is super important, and I've always connected to its protest routes. Mm. Um, but I think we can take inspiration from that and put it in other places. So Mardi Gras has transformed over the years. How do you think it will continue changing 10, 20, 30 years from now? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Mm. I mean, I would like to see it return to its protest roots totally, but I would like to see a, um, you know, in 20 or 30 or 50 years, I would like to see some actual change um, for queer liberation. You know, I'd I'd like to see our rights be taken seriously Um, and, and perhaps Mardi Gras can be a part of that, but I mean, perhaps not as well, Mm. you know. Maybe we do need to think about where we direct our energy and time and and dissent and, you know, maybe Mardi Gras is not a part of that. And that's okay um, because there are plenty of other places to do this. But, yeah, Mardi Gras, I think I'm not sure where it's going yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, um, somewhere good. Yeah. Yeah. How can people get more involved in queer led campaigns? Well, I mean, totally get you know come to a protest first of all. Mm. You know, if you if you hear it, if you see it on Facebook, um, come out. You know, um, sometimes it can feel a bit scary to come to a protest, especially if it's your first time. But um, it's really important that we actually show numbers and show our dissent of this religious exemptions bill or for refugee rights, um, for queer rights. Um, and I mean, get involved with Community Action for Rainbow Rights. It's a super awesome organisation that is really, you know, um, it, it's basically the pinnacle of 
organizing you know queer organizing in sydney at the moment um and yeah come and get involved like come to a protest but also also get involved with organizing you know it's super important Thanks so much for talking with us this morning, Aidan. Thank you. That was queer activist Aidan Magro speaking to us about tonight's Mardi Gras celebrations and why their increasing commercialization is taking up space in queer organizing groups. Well, that's all we've got time for for the show today. Another big thanks to our producers, Natalie Sekolovska, Eden Faithful, and Pip Leeson. And thanks again to our guests, Mel Fife and Aidan Magro. We'll catch you next week, but before we do, we're going to ha- hear the latest from Doja Cat. That's right. Hell yeah. She's been killing it with this banger. This is Say So. Have a great Mardi Gras, everyone. Happy Mardi Gras!